Well, let's turn together, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. It was a year ago, uh, last Thursday, on December 30th, 2019, that uh, doctors in Wuhan, China, came across patients with a mysterious, hard-to-treat pneumonia, or so they thought it was. The Chinese government tried to cover it up in the face of what all of their experts were saying. And so from the get-go, it was a clash of politics and science, even as it is in our own country. And the tension between politics and science would go on to define the pandemic the world over in almost every country. In China, politics ruled until they couldn't contain the contagion, until they could, you know, cover it up no longer, which is why three weeks later, after they first discovered it, it on January 23, 2020, the authorities sealed off the city of Wuhan, China, turning a city of 11 million into a ghost town overnight. It was not a power grab on the part of the Chinese authorities. They already had the power. No, it was about a science, given the best they knew at the time. That was on January 23, 2020. Three days later, on Sunday, February 2nd, in our verse-by-verse exposition of the Scripture, we came to a passage in Romans that was about the judgments of God as they cycle through history in many different ways. And on that day, I read to you from a letter that was written by a dear pastor in Wuhan, China, one titled, Pray For Us. He wrote it to brothers and sisters in Christ the world over as COVID took over life as they knew it in in Wuhan, China. It was barely on our radar screens in America, and little did I know how much what he said in that letter would be a word for us in America. Because in that letter, he told us what their bottom line response as Christians had been. How for them, the heart of their response to COVID didn't have to do with politics. He didn't say a thing about, you know, the government's cover-up. Though it seemed everyone else was talking about the cover-up on WeChat, which is their equivalent of Facebook. Nor did the heart of their response, anyway, have to do with science, though this pastor and his people did wear masks and they distanced themselves. No, this is what he said to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ the world over. This is what I read. He said, Wuhan's pestilence cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Christians may with the world face the same tribulations, but such tribulations are no longer condemnations, but a new opportunity to grow nearer to the Almighty. When disaster strikes, it is now but a form of God's love. Thus, my brothers and sisters, I encourage you to be strong in Christ's love. If we more deeply experience death in this pestilence, may we more deeply experience Christ's love and grow ever nearer to God. Bottom line response. And then he went on to let us know what God had been saying to him and to his church in that posture as he went on to grow ever nearer to him. 
what God had been saying to them, not politically, not scientifically, but first and foremost, spiritually. What's your priority? And then at the end of the letter, he summed it up by saying, the past few days I have received many inquiries from foreign pastors. They and the whole church are concerned for this city and even more for us. First, and this is what he ended it with, first and foremost, I especially ask them to turn their eyes upon Jesus. Is that your priority? Has that been your posture? Seeking Jesus under all you do and say? Is it Jesus or truth be told, is is your priority politics or science? Have you been growing ever nearer to the Almighty through this pestilence with your eyes on Jesus who alone can give us the wisdom to discern between politics and science. It's like Julie said yesterday, and I wrote it down. She said, these days we need to glance at the world, but gaze at Christ. She said, the minute Peter got his eyes off Christ and onto his circumstances, he went down. And I fear we're going down too. I fear that the American church is so divided in good part because too many are gazing at the world and only glancing at Christ. Too many are listening to any and every voice but the voice of the Almighty. We give lip service to his word but truth be told, our passion too often, our addiction is the web. And the cacophony of voices that are there. And so even Christians are being tossed here and there by waves, as Paul said, carried about by every wind of doctrine and division and even delusion. By the craftiness and deceitful scheming, as he said, of the forces of darkness that are raging the world over. And we're ranting and raving like the world, like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. There are a lot of Christian prophets out there these days saying a lot of prophetic things and totally contradicting each other. A lot of prophets are going crazy these days. But I believe this pastor did have a prophetic word for us directly from God. A a word to Christians in America especially. It came at the end of January last year, as I said, just days after the first reported case of COVID on the West Coast. Perfect timing. That's when I read it. Not a prophetic forthtelling, not forthtelling the future, but it was a prophetic, uh, uh, not a prophetic foretelling, but it was a prophetic forthtelling of the truth, a word of exhortation that ended up perfectly fitting the situation. This pastor was talking about the wellspring of everything, the wellspring of all that we should do and say or not do and say in response to this pandemic. So, Have you been growing ever nearer to the Almighty? 
Some of you have, and many of you are trying to. I've been talking to you. You've been yearning for it, for deeper communion with him. You're seeking, but some of you have not found it. And so today, this will be for you a word of encouragement. You're doing the right thing. Just persevere. For others of you, it'll be a word of exhortation, of rebuke, that only one thing under it all is necessary. That's the title of the sermon I gave almost exactly a year ago before all this happened on Sunday, December 29th, 2019, just a few days ago. It was the day before the first reported case of COVID in China on Monday, December 30th, and four weeks before the first COVID case in the U.S., a word of exhortation that ended up fitting our situation. So here we are again. Here we are at the gate of the year, and I've been looking back over all that and a whole lot more, as I'm sure many of you have been too. You know, at each of our churches we serve before the new year, at the end of the old year, I'd look back over the old year and pick out the one sermon that I most needed to hear personally and that perhaps we most needed to hear congregationally, and we'd launch the new year with that one sermon. I wouldn't always do this, but sometimes it would seem obvious that I should. But it would happen more and more through the years because more and more these days we've been living in a day of distraction and we forget. Where we forget the most important things. And this year it was a no-brainer. This year the one sermon is titled, One Thing is Necessary. It was almost exactly a year ago, just before all of this happened, on December 29th, 2019. It's from Luke 10, starting in verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What's the one thing for you? What's the one thing in your life? What's the one thing that most matters that shall not be taken from you no matter what happens? Martha was worried and bothered by so much that seemed so important, yet it all ended up being just a bunch of activity, more like hyperactivity, without any eternal priorities. Just a bunch of noise it was when she complained to Jesus. A lot of noise out there these days. Martha was all but, you know, ADD. Mary, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. At the still point of her turning world, at the eye of the hurricane, Mary was centered on Christ. 
like the Wuhan pastor said, she turned her eyes upon Jesus. Roberta Heston was a godly woman who's uh, impacted me deeply over the years. She's devoted a good part of her life to what we call spiritual formation, uh, and especially the spiritual life of, of the leader. And uh, the one thing that's most necessary. And in one way or another, I owe a good part of this message to her, and even at a deeper level, to my mother. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. A number of years ago, she, Roberta moved from the Pacific Northwest, where there were many trees, to Orange County, California, where God knows there are just a few trees. And so, when her family made the move, she said that her main prayer was this. She said, Lord... This is just a desire. You don't have to do it, but please give us a place with trees. And as it turned out, they ended up on a piece of property that had 88 of them, which she lovingly counted. But as fate would have it, there were four years of drought after they moved in. And when the rains finally came, a strange thing happened. Two of the trees had completely collapsed. One of them, the one that fell across the driveway, was 80 feet tall. They measured it. It was so big that it took a truck uh, and a winch and four men to pull it off the driveway. And she wondered, how could such a thing have happened with such a big and majestic tree? She was so curious and she was so concerned about the other trees that she called in a landscape architect who was an arborist, a tree specialist. And after surveying the devastation, he said this, they do look beautiful on the top, don't they? But look at the one that's fallen. Now that it's fallen, notice its root structures. And when she did, for the first time, she saw the obvious. Now that the tree was down, it was clear that when it was standing, the roots had been running horizontally, parallel to the ground, just beneath the surface. Rather than plunging vertically down. And here's what the man said. He said, during the drought... The roots all came up to the surface because, why? Because they weren't being fed down deep. What about you? Are you being fed down deep each and every day? Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered by so many things. Those trees look so beautiful on the outside, but all the while they were dying of malnutrition, but you couldn't tell it by looking. And if that's not the church in America to a good degree these days, I don't know what is. You know, we have a tendency in our Christian walk to give an enormous amount of energy to our outer lives, to our vocations, to our ambitions, to our ministries, to our families, our grandchildren, our children, our recreation, our televisions, our smartphones, all the little hobbies and trivial activities that all together can become such big priorities. We live in a day of distraction, as one man said, especially with the advent of the Internet. In fact, I have a book on my shelves, a Pulitzer Prize winner called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It's about how, among much else, there's a growing body of literature sounding the alarm, but nobody's listening. It's about how it promotes endless distraction, not concentration. How shallow we become in all our surfing. 
devoting so much time and energy to what amounts to nothing. So as extremely, research shows that extremely short exposures to the internet, the right exposures, can induce powerful delusional thinking in quite normal people. And there's a lot more there. Devoting so much time and energy to really to what amounts to nothing, to, 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 to vanishing pixels on a screen. To, to the shallows, rather than being fed down deep. Long before the internet, C.S. Lewis wrote this, and he could have written it about the internet. He said, nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years. Not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what, and it knows not why, in the gratifications of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them relish. It does not matter how strong the sins are so long as their cumulative effect is to edge a man away from the light and into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without signposts, slip sliding away. To which I would only add today, lost in cyberspace. Martha neglected the real in that she was fixing on things which are seen, as it says in Hebrews, rather than on the things which are unseen. And so it is with us. We gaze at the temporal, at the visual, at the virtual, at the inconsequential, at the trivial, rather than at the spiritual, the eternal. Martha did this so much, though, that she neglected reality She renected life itself, a real relationship with the Lord of life at the the still point of her turning world. There were three things that were keeping her from this one thing, three symptoms of shallow roots. Maybe this applies to you right now as I go through them. Or maybe you were a Martha, but you're no longer one now that you're older. And you feel guilty that you're not a Martha any longer, that you can't do as much as before. In which case, this will encourage you. You're in a good place just to go deeper now that you're freer. Maybe COVID has given you a break from the rat race so you can think about it some before jumping back in. Like we all need to. About how there are three symptoms of shallow roots. The first was that Martha was running tired. Running (laughs) tired. Can you relate? Or could you at one time? Maybe not all of you can, but some of you I'm sure can. This can happen when you almost start to measure your success by how stressed you are. Like Martha seemed to be doing. Life means always doing, always talking, always experiencing, never sitting, never really listening. Unless you're experiencing numbing fatigue, you must not be working hard enough. Unless you're experiencing an adrenaline rush 
or, you know, the dopamine rush that happens when we look at the screen. For some, activity becomes like an anesthetic fog that dulls the pain of something, of an empty life or of some past pain or some future fear. For me, it's, it's a fear, uh, it had been for many years, and to some degree it is still to this day, that the bottom will fall out unless I keep it all going. That the whole world will fall apart like happened to me when my first father died, unless somehow I could shoulder the world. And so I tend to feel like the whole world is on my shoulders. I tend to bear a burden that only God can. That, that's playing God. That's prideful. Others are running tired because they're running low on faith. They don't have the faith to give God the tithe of their time. There are just too many guests to serve. There's just too much to do. And because you never give them, it's like the tithe of your money. Because you never give them the tithe of your time, there's never enough time. Same thing. Long ago, one man said, we impoverished life at the center for the sake of its ever-widening circumference. And that happens more than anywhere on the internet. We impoverished life at the center for the sake of the ever-widening circumference of cyberspace. Or maybe it was your workplace. Before COVID, were you ever like, you know, a rubber band at the end of the stretch, you know how that is. You pull a rubber band far enough, it loses all of what, what do you call it? It's tensile strength or whatever. And then you pull a little bit further and what happens? It snaps. Will you let it get that way again after COVID? We, we, we need to live life uh, in, in the flex. But many of us, instead of living in the flex, are living on the edge all the time. And that's great in recreation. That's great if you're knee-deep in powder at a basin on a glorious day once in a while. But it's not great if that's your whole life. If you're living in the stretched out, uh, stressed out limit of your capabilities with very little room for anything else to come in. And God knows something else will come in. It's not great if you're feeling like Flip Wilson. I don't know if you remember that old comedian. Someone asked him, what would you do if you had your whole life to live over? To which he answered, I doubt if I'd have the strength. And then you get upset at your spouse or your kids or your friends or your co-workers who aren't doing as much as you, who haven't, haven't bought into the madness. And you say, do you not care? You've left me to do all the serving. This is a typical complaint of a Martha. She gets self-righteously indignant at everyone who's not doing as much as she is until she's, she says, Lord, do you not care? Why did she say this? Why such a fleshly reaction? Think about it. She was giving God himself the what for. <laughs> Why? Well, there were three things that were keeping her from the one thing, God himself. First, she was running tired because second, she was running busy. Here the Lord of the universe was in the very next room. Her sister Mary was at the still point of the turning world, at the eye of the hurricane. Her own sister was there on her knees as an example, 
Lord, you do not care. Did the Lord care? Well, that's called a no-brainer question. Of course he did. The real problem is not that he didn't care enough about her, but that she didn't care enough about him. Because she was worshiping the wrong God, bowing down to the idol of busyness for whatever reason. What about you? Running busy. It's not that a full schedule is wrong. Paul said that we're to be steadfast. Remember the famous verse? Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That was my father's favorite verse, and it's one of mine too. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul said we're not to be lagging behind in diligence. Romans 12, 11, Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. He said that whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Colossians 3, 23. But without some quiet devotion, it'll all end up being just so much commotion. Running the rat race like Martha was. And like Lily Tomlin, another comedian said, the problem with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. You're climbing the wrong ladder on the wrong building. And what's the difference between the two? Between God's race and the rat race? Well, the difference between the race that God's given us and this race is that in the world's way of running, uh, though there's a whole lot of motion, there's not much real direction. You never really get anywhere in the overall scheme of things. Because in man's race, you end up more like, you know, this gerbil in a wheel. A rat in a maze going for the couple of pellets at the end. But in God's race, if you do it in the right way, you're a runner in a marathon, steadily drawing on inner reserves at the still point of your turning world, midstream of his will, as you go for the gold. In whatever you do. Martha was going nowhere fast. Because there were three things that were keeping her from this one thing. First, she was running tired. Because second, she was running busy. And therefore, third, finally, she was running filled but unfulfilled. Filled but unfulfilled. She was running on empty. Which, of course, is a good prescription for getting rather fleshly. This is an emphasis, uh, the emphasis of a life that has no time for the life giver. And those who practice such neglect end up filled but unfulfilled. As someone said, beware the barrenness of the busy life. Beware the barrenness of a life online, busily scrolling, surfing, and clicking. A life that clicks, because you'll end up filled but unfulfilled. It's so easy, isn't it? I struggle with this myself as well, to fill our lives and our children's lives with people and things and extracurricular activities and sports and entertainment and Facebook and Twitter and all those other things that are there. And what can happen is your mind, as your mind gets more and more full, your soul uh, becomes more and more barren and in time there can be a collapse. We're seeing this all over the place with famous pastors like Bill Hybels, like with Robbie Zacharias, with James McDonald, 
We see the hollowness that was there all the time because they didn't go to the right place every day. It comes in many forms, this collapse, backsliding, midlife crisis, depression, adultery, pornography, burnout in ministry. All because it's so easy to become filled but unfulfilled, running on empty. And God help us when that happens. It's happening across the nation today. There's so much more, but if that's the problem... What's the solution? Well, again, the solution has to do with centering your life on Christ, like Mary did. It has to do with (laughs) glancing at the world, but gazing at Jesus. And you do that in two ways. By becoming rooted in the body of Christ and more reflective At the feet of Christ. Biblically it has to do with solitude and community. It says in the Phillips translation that Mary was settled down at the Lord's feet. She was rooted. She was firmly planted along with the many others that were likely there with her in the room that day. In sharp contrast to Martha who was out out there restlessly on her own. Desperately alone. For whatever reason, she just couldn't center herself. She couldn't settle down. It's the centering of our lives, the anchoring of our lives that we're talking about. And it happens in community where we're really committed to one another and through each other to him. Because where two or three are gathered, as we know, there he is. It's where we can become rooted rather than restless, just like we used to do in our Home fellowship groups uh, and uh, and Bible study groups and women in the word and Sunday schools and every Sunday morning when we gather together to hear his word preached. In so many ways it happens in community as we now know so well now that we can't experience it as much as we used to. And we're in a precarious situation when we can't. But it doesn't have to be precarious because it also happens fundamentally, most importantly of all, in solitude. Which is the emphasis of this passage. And which God is forcing us to focus on these days like never before. Could it be that a good part of God's agenda in this year of separation is that we make this connection? This soul-anchoring connection with him. It happens in solitude where we can become reflective rather than just reactive. Rooted rather than restless. Centered rather than scattered. At, at the feet of Jesus. These days more than ever with so many voices... Vying for our attention in the the cacophony of voices that are dividing the body. In this year of such separation from one another, such division, where people can be so reactive, we desperately need to be reflective at the feet of the only one who can bring us together. Where we say, Just like they sang, 
Speak, Lord, and we will hear. Only when we stop sacrificing our lives to nothing, only when we stop listening to everything, only then will we be able to discern between politics and science in Jesus. In many ways, the question is this. Do you have enough faith to give God the tithe of your time? Most of you know what you need to do, how you best connect through to God through your daily devotions and all through the day and through worship and through Bible study and, and fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ and all the rest. There are no lack of resources out there. And if you'd like some ideas of what to do to center yourselves in Him, Julie and I would love to talk with you. Please just give us a call. If you're just starting, a good place uh, to begin is with a classic called Seven Minutes with God, How to Plan uh, a Daily Quiet Time. It's good even if you're not just starting out. How to Plan a Daily Quiet Time. And if you, I've got copies. If you'd like one after the service, if you're online, just give us your email address and, uh, your address and we'll send you one. We're talking about what you do apart from Sunday. You know, sometimes people will talk about the Christian faith as if it were just one day of the week. One room in the house, just another piece of the puzzle. I have my job, I have my social relationships, I have my recreational activities, I have my family, and then way over here I have my church, my religion. But Christianity, of course, is not just supposed to be our religion. It's not just one spoke of the wheel. No, Jesus Christ is supposed to be the hub of the wheel. The, the, the center of your work, of your relationships, of your activities, of your very thoughts, of your whole life. Everything is to flow out of this abiding relationship with Christ because he alone, God knows, can hold it all together and somehow keep it all moving in the right direction. If he's not at the still point, of your turning world, at the hub of your life, the pieces will eventually spin out of control as is happening to churches and Christians across the nation. But if he is at the center, if you abide in him, unlike all the trees out there that weren't being fed down deep that are now toppling over, you'll be deeply rooted. Like the tree that was firmly planted by streams of water psalm one first psalm of the first day of the new year yielding its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers because his delight is in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates day and night it's like the visitor to the austrian alps who was making his first climb. Two seasoned guides went with him because it was a steep and a hazardous ascent, and they climbed for hours until finally they reached the summit. And when at last they did, the young man leapt to his feet to take in the view, but he forgot about the gale force winds that were up there, just like our, up at the top of our 14ers. 
And so he was almost blown off over the cliff. In fact, he would have fallen off the cliff had the guide not caught him and pulled him down. And here's what he said. On your knees, sir, on your knees. You are never safe up here except on your knees. And so with us. In a world that's falling apart, when even Christians are being tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and division and even delusion, led astray by, by, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming of the forces of darkness that are raging the world over, we will not succeed if we're running busy, running tired, Running filled but unfulfilled. Running on fumes. You will never be safe unless you, say, uh, uh, unless you s- stay on your knees, sir, madam. At his feet. In his word. There will be no victory unless somehow we're united by his voice. The still small voice. So there's a lot more, but that's what I've been thinking here at the gate of the year. I'm reminded of what King Edward of England said at the beginning of 1943, and with this I'll close. It was another troubled time in world history, of course. It was during World War II, and it was in his annual New Year's Day radio broadcast, which he ended with this. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. And it shall be better to you than light and safer than a known way. That's my prayer for me this year. And for all of you, too, it's, I think, worthy of a resolution. Simply that we'd put our hand into his hand every day. That we'd seek to do it at every minute of the day, at each step of the way. That we'd take time to pray all through the day, as the simple song says that we began this sermon with. In fact, you might want to pray this silently with me as I pray it again, like we sang it. Out loud, let's pray together. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Help me stand. I am weak. I am tired. I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead us on to the light. Take our hand, precious Lord. Lead us home. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, early let us turn to thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship leaders come forward, really it's at the core of our mission as a church. It's how we come to know and show the truth and love of Jesus Christ. As our mission says, we do that as in the garden we grow deeper in our relation to him.